We have one case for argument this morning, the State of Minnesota v. Hall. Uh, Ms. Burdock, you reserve 10 minutes for rebuttal. Say yes. Yes. <laughs> you may proceed when you're ready. Thank you. Uh, may it please the court, my name is Jean Burdorf. I'm an assistant Hennepin County attorney, and today I represent the appellant, State of Minnesota. Uh, the Minnesota Court of Appeals in this case held that to obtain a conviction for third-degree murder, the prosecution must not only prove that the defendant acted with a depraved mind, but must also prove, disprove that they acted with intent to kill. That holding was erroneous because it ignored this court's present precedent, it misinterpreted this court's precedent, leads to absurd and unintended results, and essentially upends Minnesota's integrated homicide scheme. All of the points I just touched on are contained in um, the state's briefs and in the amicus brief submitted on behalf of the state of Minnesota. And so today I just wanted to focus my comments on largely on the Court of Appeals misuse of this court's precedent. Uh, first, I'd like to talk about just the direct precedent from this court that's on point. There are two cases that this court has decided that held directly contrary to the Court of Appeals holding in this particular case. The first is Stokely. It's a case from 1871. The issue in the case was whether or not an instruction on depraved mind murder was erroneous. Um, and in that particular case, the error alleged was that it was erroneous because it didn't require the prosecution to disprove uh, that the actor acted without intent to kill. Um, this court said in 1871 that that was apparently a mistake or an obvious mistake um, because the phrase without intent to affect the death of any person that is contained within the third degree murder statute simply isn't element of the offense that the state is required to prove. The second case is a case, I'm going to pronounce it Middick. I looked that up on YouTube, so I'm going with it. Um, but it's State versus Middick. That's a case from 1973, decided by this court. Again, that is a case where the defendant was actually convicted of depraved mind murder, and the case came to you as a sufficiency review. Um, the argument on appeal, the, the defendant had been charged with first-degree murder and uh, second-degree murder, and this was a lesser offense, obviously. The argument on appeal from the defendant was, I can't be convicted of third-degree murder because... I acted with particularity towards a particular victim, therefore I obviously can't be convicted of third-degree murder. And what this court had to say about that is, no, again, that's wrong. First, the lack of intent to kill isn't an element of third-degree murder. And second, you ran through what the elements of third-degree murder are and said, obviously, a killing of the sort in Middick, and it was a shooting of two people, was constituted depraved mind murder. And so you affirmed that conviction on sufficiency review. run, uh, that's our precedent as well, and seems to run contrary to the cases that, that you just uh, referred us to. Certainly. I, I think they, there's a couple things I want to say about that whole line of cases. Hansen, there's Lowe from 1896. There's just a series of cases. Um, and I don't want to come off as overly critical, but I do think some of the language in those cases is looser than I'd, than I'd like to see in a case. Um, but it comes, the more important point I would like to make is that I think it comes up in a different context, which is that those are ca all cases really that come up on a, a legal challenge where the defendant has been convicted of a greater offense and then 
on appeal to this court, says, I should have received a lesser, ins lesser included offense instruction for third degree murder. The district court abused its discretion by not giving me that instruction. That review is just analytically different. Um, uh, one of the best cases to demonstrate the point that I mean about language is a case called Zumberg that this court decided. Before you go there, finish that thought though. Ana analytically different how? Because the test is different. The test for whether or not you get a lesser included offense is, is it a lesser included? And I don't think anyone disputes that third degree murder is a lesser included offense of first degree murder. So that, that really isn't where the meat of this disagreement comes from. The other uh, two prongs of the Darlene test, I'll, I'll just refer to it that way, is that there has to be evidence that would essentially a rational basis to acquit on the greater offense, so first degree murder, but there also has to be a rational basis to convict on the lesser offense. So the, the test is just analytically different. And I read that this court's case law on, on in that arena. So Hansen, Loathe, all of those cases that are really talking about that as the court saying essentially there's overwhelming evidence of intent to kill or premeditation and so there really isn't a rational basis to acquit on the greater and so convict with, on the lesser. So the test of whether um, something is an element, it, it depends then, if what I'm hearing you say, it depends upon the analytical framework that, that's, being, that's at issue. Well, I think the analytical framework for deciding whether a phrase contained in a criminal statute is an element is the one that you identified in a case called State versus, I'm going to say, Brechen. Again, a YouTube reference, so I'm going to go with it. Um, I think that's the analytic framework for deciding whether something is an element. I guess what I'm saying about Hansen, Stiles, Zumberg, that line of cases, is that the, the question that the court is answering in those cases is, was there a rational basis to acquit on the greater offense? Was there a rational basis to convict on the lesser offense? Some of the language, the, the point I was trying to make earlier about some of the language, the, the language of, for instance, Zumberg is that a person won't get a lesser included offense of third degree murder if they had a specific design toward a particular person that they are charged with, the person that they are charged with killing. That is the standard the court used. Um, and it, in that case, the result was that the, the action in Zumberg was specifically directed towards a particular person and that there was intent to kill that person and premeditation shown. And so a lesser, in, the, the district court's decision not to give a lesser included offense instruction wasn't an abuse of discretion under those circumstances. In a way, counsel, that goes to the other, one of the other points that the defendant raises, which is when you're talking about who the person is, you just alluded to the person is whomever, the victim essentially, whomever was actually injured or killed, which would by definition mean it's not the defendant, him or herself. That's that exactly right. I think a correct reading of the court's case law in that arena, sort of the lesser included offense instruction, and it really started with a case in 1896 called State versus Low. That's the first time you see this language about you can't have a specific design towards a particular person that you're charged with killing. It really is, I think, a mechanism of distinguishing between the greater degrees of murder and a, and a third degree murder. But if you apply that case law as it's written, so that your specific design has to be towards, essentially tethered to the particular person that you're charged with killing, clearly that would exclude, exclude Miss Hall and, the, and it would essentially defeat the suicide theory 
that was advanced at the Court of Appeals. Um, what, what the, the point that I wanted to make about Zumberg and the language is I do think that there is case law, so I, I don't want to make it seem like the Court of Appeals just made up the standard that they used. Good, don't do that. No, I don't want to do that. There is, I think, a little bit looser language in some of the cases that talks about the specific design against a particular person. Sometimes that f phrase that's tacked on to the end, which is it has to be the person that you are charged with killing, sometimes that gets admitted from cases. And so when I talked about maybe more precision in the language, I think that's really the point that I was trying to tactfully make. And, but I, I think that the Court of Appeals looked at some of that language and untethered the idea of the specific design and the particular person. Well, so I think that's the error that was made. Is, they said any person is any person. And we have considerable case law that says just from a plain language standpoint, you look at any person she's a person yes but that's also assuming that without intact, intent to affect the death of any person is an element the state has to prove right. and Kelsey, so you might have to look at it in the context of the entire statute right you do that you start with first degree and you go to the lesser to the lesser that's that's exactly right and really that's the second point i wanted to make about the case law is to affirm the court of appeals in this case not only would you have to overrule stokely and overrule minnick but you'd also have to effectively overrule a whole host of other cases that involve other degrees of homicide we do have an integrated homicide scheme in minnesota it starts with manslaughter and the second degree goes all the way up to remunerated murder and the way that the statutes operate is it, it, it's really just relative increased culpability each builds on the other so we add an element of culpability each time we go up a degree. The second degree murder statutes have very similar language to the statute that was at issue in Hall. You know, this phrase is without premeditation. Um, the felony murder statute has the exact phrase involved in um, the third degree murder statute, which is int without intent to affect the death of any person. Even the manslaughter statutes have language that says you're guilty of manslaughter if you act with culpable negligence and your crime doesn't constitute other degrees of murder. All of those phrases are really similar to the phrase that's at issue in Hall. Um, and if the reasoning of the Court of Appeals majority in Hall is accepted by this court, you're not only, you would be upending Staples from 1914, you'd be upending Cole that this court decided in the 1990s, um, and you'd be upending more. All of those cases say that the elements, either without premeditation or without intent to affect death in Minnesota's homicide statutes aren't elements. So if Hall is accepted, we are in, you would effectively be overruling not just the ones that directly involve third degree to murder, but also the case law that interprets the other degrees of murder in Minnesota's homicide scheme. So one of the other- I have a question for you. It's a little bit different than Certainly. what you've been on, but. Paul claims that it, under your application of the progression standard, um, the second phrase in the statute, without regard for human life, should also not be an element either. I'm sorry, could you say that again? I'm having a little trouble hearing you. Oh, sorry. In, no, in the statute, there's two phrases that have without starting them. And the yeah. second one is without regard for human life. And Hall's argument is if, if you read the first one is not um, being an element, then you have to read that second one as not being an element too. Right, and I think that that's inconsistent with this court's case law because that phrase 
I argued in my brief that the first phrase is what is called a non-restrictive clause set out by commas, um, and that means that it's not essential to the definition. The second phrase isn't that type of grammatical phrase, and it modifies, it is actually a restrictive <laughs> phrase set off by the, commas that modifies depraved mind. So I, I, it's essential to the statute. It's essential to the meaning of the statute. Depraved mind has the, the phrase or the word phrase that it modifies without, you know, without indifference to human life, that phrase. Uh, it does modify depraved mind, which has been defined by this court, to include that concept, which is really wanton, vicious conduct. Counsel, normally when um, we're interpreting a statute, we look only at the statute. We don't look at other statutes um, unless the phrase we're interpreting is ambiguous. Now, you just mentioned that this would upset the framework of Minnesota's homicide statutory scheme. Are we entitled to look at the, the first and second degree murder statutes and use that to help us in our decision making without determining that the third degree murder statute is ambiguous? In other words, are we entitled to do this pre-ambiguity? Our argument is, is really not one about ambiguity. I don't think that there is any ambiguity in the words of the third degree murder statute. But the test that this court adopted, and I'm gonna go with Brescian now because Justice Chudish picked it, so I'm going to use that impression, is it's different. Uh, you have a different analytic test for determining whether something constitutes an element. This court in past cases, Brescian being in a good example, also looks at the history of the text of the statute. So in this particular context, I don't think the fight is what the words mean. I think it is whether or not they are elements of the offense that have to be proved, and you have used in the past a very different analytic framework for that. Actually, I'm kind of wondering whether um, we can and should take a look at the first and second degree murder statutes of the entire scheme. I mean, after all, these murder statutes were all passed in 1963 mm -hmm. as part of the comprehensive revision of the Minnesota Criminal mm -hmm. Code. Um, I'll ask opposing counsel the same question. Would you agree with that? Uh, they, that they were all, well, they were all codified that, in 1963. We can, I agree we can with that. interpret them in conjunction with one another. I think you have to interpret them in conjunction with another because they... Uh, contain identical or very similar analogous language. That's the related statutes canon that this court cited in State versus Suthavan or Thonsavan. <laughs> Thanks. Um, in that case, that's a, precisely what the, the court did, is you use the related canon statute. I think there's a wealth of case law in addition to that case from Minnesota that says, if there's any question about what we're doing with these statutes, we look to related statutes that are part of the same scheme. We look at statutes, and I encourage the court to do this. Look at statutes that are obviously part of an integrated scheme together. I think it would make very little sense to look at one statute in isolation and say, well, the words mean this in this statute and not in the rest of them that use identical language. That just makes no sense to me as a matter of interpretation. If we uphold the Court of Appeals here and kind of set aside that this is a vehicle case, um, so is it a different kind of suicide, what would you charge the person with? In this case? Yeah, if we uphold the Court of Appeals, so you can't charge them with third degree murder and you can't charge them with criminal, hom criminal vehicular homicide, uh, so set aside that option, what, what would you charge the person with? Or could you so if you take out criminal vehicular homicide, which is the other conviction. Yes, say it's not a car case. Say it's a different kind of suicide. Is there anything you could charge this defendant with? 
Well, I mean, if you accepted the Court of Appeals and you accepted that her intent to kill herself is operative in, in matters in this context, we could charge her with intentional and premeditated murder. First-degree murder. First-degree murder, which is vastly worse. I mean, that's, that's one of the arguments we did make in our brief, really, which is reading the statute and the language in the statute the way the Court of Appeals has advocated really does lead to absurd and unintended consequences, and that's probably the primary one, which is if her intent to kill herself dictates what we're doing through the theory of transferred intent, would the first she would be guilty of a vastly greater degree of homicide. And I don't think it is fair in any um, way to assume that that's what the legislature would have intended for this particular crime. I think at common law. Excuse me, but can you use the transferred intent in the case of suicide, which is not illegal? I mean, that's that kind of puzzles me. I mean, she has intent to kill herself, Mm -hmm. um, but that's not illegal. Right. I have not understood the theory of transferred intent, as I understand it, operates this way, which is I I intend to do an act towards one person and I actually harm a second person. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, and the intent to harm, let's say, harm me, is against the law, right? It is, yeah. uh, although I, I don't understand the doctrine of transferred intent to preclude, uh, I suppose, injurious self in, uh, self-injurious intent. I don't know why. If we assume that a person's intention to kill themselves is operative in this fact pattern, and there is really no logical reason it wouldn't apply um, in a transferred intent situation. That's what I'm asking, though. It seems to me there's a difference when something isn't illegal. Like if I intend to kill myself and I fail, I don't get charged with a crime. Um, if I, you know, there's. So I'm wondering. There is intent to kill, but it's Certainly. it's not in a in a societal prohibited manner. So that I just don't think that the right. intent and to transfer applies well, so, at all in this situation. So does that mean there's no crime? Well, if you accept what Justice Tudich says, that means there's no crime. Yes. I, I mean, I that, think there could be a crime, like you mentioned a suicide bomber. Well, if you have a bomb, I think you could, mm-hmm. you know, even though you admit you're going to, I mean, you intend to kill yourself, as, but with the bomb you're intending, you could certainly be charged if it failed, if it didn't go off, for example. I think you could be charged with attempted second-degree murder. But that would also be under a transferred intent theory. I intend to kill myself knowing under circumstances that I am likely to kill other people as I do this. Uh, Well, but but it's so likely that you're going to kill other people that we say you had intent to kill other people. And you don't, you just leave aside the suicide part. But with the bomb, you're showing that, hey, I, I planned this and I intended to kill people. So that could be first degree even. For instance, I, there is a case in Minnesota where there was an attempted suicide bomb in southern Minnesota. And some of the intended victims were not visible or known to the defendant. And that it, so you tweak your fact pattern a no, little bit. No, that's about, absolutely right. Yeah. Then you would be operating on a transferred intent theory. And again, yeah, and, if, and if that's it's where accept- the third degree murder comes in because you don't know exactly and who you're going to kill, and you don't really intend to kill right. anybody. But you're doing such harmful acts in a place where a reasonable person would know somebody's going to get hurt. And I think that that's really, I made a couple different arguments in my brief that I think address the point you're making, which is one, I don't think an intent to kill oneself 
is mutually exclusive with intending to kill other people or even acting with a depraved mind. It's somehow the Court of Appeals looked at this as one or the other. It's either intent to kill oneself or it's depraved mind. And I think it can actually be both for the precisely the reason you just stated, which is you can, in the act of killing oneself or attempting to kill oneself, do something that is so knowingly dangerous and extreme, extremely indifferent towards the lives of other people that you are, in fact, guilty of depraved mind, third degree murder. And I would submit to the court that that's what, exactly what happened in this particular case. Well, can I ask a slightly different question? And that is, um, you talk in your brief, you say in your brief that if we were to adopt the Court of Appeals ruling, one of the other um, uh, adverse consequences would be that it would make it virtually impossible for the state to, to prove um, uh, intent in this instance. And uh, in Brescian, we, that was one of the factors that was talked about was, well, you know, the state has the ability to, to prove without claim of right in any number of ways. Now, it seems to me that maybe is a little bit easier because you're talking about property rights. You could say, you could bring in somebody from Honeywell to say, mm. this is our property, they have no right to be here, um, or other property concepts. You could bring in the deed if, or something to show, you know, this individual has title to that property maybe a little bit more difficult in this context because you talk about that a little bit because i think defendants are uh, respondents argument is that's what you do as prosecutors you often have to try to prove intent and it's often done by circumstantial evidence and so what's the difference what's you know how is this materially different certainly i'm happy to talk about that i do think that uh, it is a much more difficult task when you're talking about mental state of a defendant because it is largely proved by circumstantial evidence um, mental state is amorphous in some cases, and we have cases all the time where we have a set of facts and we're looking at it when we're trying to charge it, and it, I'll give you an example. We will have a shooting where someone shoots across someone's lap at a victim and kills them, and it appears that it might have been an act of panic. But at the same time, that, that actor shot the person in a vital area of their body, the heart, the head. That is a fact that would indicate an intent to kill. And so we are faced with these fact patterns that look, perhaps it's depraved mind to shoot when you don't know what you're shooting at. Perhaps it's intent to kill. You've hit a vital part of the body. And so- Isn't that your job though? I mean, it is you, our job. You, you marshal the evidence. It you is our job. You bring in the witnesses or you point to the evidence that would suggest, oh, this wasn't um, you know, by happenstance. And I mean, that, yep. that is what you do and what you're required to do as it, prosecutors. But counsel, are you generally um, required to pr be proving a negative? Because that seems to me what would be happening here. This is, this is actually where I was going, so thank you for the segue, which is, it's one thing to gather enough evidence to prove that someone, for example, intended to kill someone. I've shot you in the chest at close range. Um, we have cases where we will charge a premeditated murder because the prosecution thinks we have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. The jury may disagree with that. The problem that I identified in my brief is this, which is you could, if we not only have to prove intent to kill, but have to disprove premeditation in a case where we have already charged premeditated murder, we could find ourselves in a fact pattern where all 12 jurors agree intent to kill has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt, but the jury is split on the existence of premeditation and the practical effect of that would, and this is not something, this happens fairly frequently in the courthouse where I work, where they will be split on the greater degree of the charge and you would have a, that would result in a hung jury because the jury 
couldn't convict of premeditated murder, but because a second-degree murder conviction would then require us to disprove premeditation, you could also not have a conviction on the lesser-included offense. I think that is not a result that was intended or would be acceptable to the legislature who drafted our murder, site, murder statutes. So that's um, really- so If you're successful, um, what happens next? Does this require a remand? What, what would happen next? I think you could reverse the decision of the Court of Appeals and affirm the jury's conviction. I think both parts of the Court of, the court of Appeals decision is really two parts. First, the legal ruling that without intent to affect death is, a, is an element the state has to disprove or prove. And then the second is their sufficiency analysis in the case was dependent upon the state's failure to prove that Ms. Hall acted without intent to kill anyone herself. I think you could, re it, I suppose the way it would work is you could reverse both of those legal rulings and then remand it back to the Court of Appeals to review the sufficiency under the appropriate legal standards. I did want to close with this. I think that this is a case where we have a person who is obviously suffering from a mental illness and she is very sympathetic and I'm not going to argue about that. This was bad facts maybe or what people perceive to be bad facts and I think what it led to was uh, bad law at the Court of Appeals um, and I would ask this court to reverse that bad law and um, remand this, I suppose, to the Court of Appeals for a, an appropriate sufficiency review. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Ms. Middlebrook. Good morning. Good morning. May it please the court. I'm Katherine Middlebrook, Chief Appellate Public Defender, representing respondent Marie Hall. Ms. Hall's conviction for third-degree murder cannot stand because the state did not prove that she did not act without intent to kill any person, that person being herself. We're asking this court to affirm the Court of Appeals decision reversing her third-degree murder conviction and remanding for sentencing on the criminal vehicular homicide conviction. A couple of points that came up during the state's argument I want to address. Um, first of all, with regard to this statute, this third degree murder statute, that is the statute that this court needs to look at and to interpret. Um, it's different than the other statutes, the first degree murder and the second degree murder statutes. And this phrase, without the intent, to affect the death of any person is critical to that statute. The third degree murder statute is different in the sense that it is a general, general statute not directed at any particular person. And it's also an unintentional crime so that in this case where Ms. Hall was intending to kill herself under the plain language of this statute, she is any person and she did intend to kill herself. Therefore, she's taken out of that statute. Okay, Counsel, your, um, your position is the language of the statute is plain, it's unambiguous, right? That's correct. All right. In interpreting the statute, though, without a finding of ambiguity, are we entitled to look at the first and second degree murder statutes 
to interpret the third-degree murder statute since they were all uh, promulgated together with the 1963 revision of Minnesota's criminal code? Under the whole canon statute, you would only look at the other statutes if there is the ambiguity. There's not. So you look at this statute, you look at all of the provisions of that statute, and you read them all together, and you look at the plain language. And based on that, no, you would not look at the other homicide statutes. Um, because, because they're different statutes, is that your position? That's right, they are <laughs> different statutes. And I'll even point out on the, the second degree intentional statute, the wording of that statute is different because it says at the very end, but without premeditation. So they, that, that's an exception. That takes, that statute reads differently than this one. And in the second degree felony murder, that statute is an unintentional crime. And the, the beginning part of that statute says it's an unintentional crime. So when you get to the actual provision for the felony murder, that actually, you could take out without intent to affect the death of any person, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. I wanted to ask you about the second degree murder statute where it says, but without premeditation. Does that mean that the state has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt to get a conviction for second-degree murder that there wasn't premeditation? No, it does not, because that phrase is different. It says, but without premeditation. And if you look at the jigs on that, the jigs specifically say that it's not necessary for the state to prove there was premeditation. Well, you're referring to the jury instruction guides. Those aren't binding on the court. We don't promulgate these jury instructions. So um, give, give me an analytical reason, besides the jigs, why but without premeditation means that the state doesn't have to prove premeditation beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, it's, that seems consistent with your argument. The, the second degree, with, with I, I see a difference between that statute where it sets out the act and the mens rea on the second degree intentional murder, and then it says, but without premeditation. That's an exception. That means, you know, contrary. This statute is a without clause. It's different well, on what the if, third what degree. Well, it says whoever but without intent to affect the death of any person in the third degree murder statute? Is it the word but in the second degree murder statute that's critical? I think that makes a difference, yes. And in this case, if you look at the third degree murder statute, that phrase, without the intent to affect the death of any person, that is, has always been back to the late 1800s and through all of the years where we had the penal code and we had all the different statutes, that, that phrase has been integral to the third degree murder statute because that statute doesn't apply where there's an intent to kill a particular person. And this court's recognized that in Hansen and in Zumberg and in Merrill and all of those cases where this is not the right statute where someone is, is intending to kill a particular person or their actions are directed at that particular person. This is a much more, it's a, I guess I would say a general broader um, murder statute in the sense that the, the classic examples are the ones they gave back um, where they drove a carriage into a crowd, where someone shot a firearm into a crowd of people, where someone put something on the railroad tracks to derail the train. Those were the depraved mind murder situations with an eminently dangerous act with a depraved mind 
and without uh, concern for Counsel, human life. Counsel, if we agree with your argument, does that open your client up to exposure for a higher degree, for the first degree? It does not. And the reason for that is the state's arguing that there's a transferred intent element here that that would apply to that uh, someone such as Ms. Hall could be convicted of a first degree or second degree murder. The, the reality is she was trying to kill herself. It was suicide. Suicide is not murder. We don't have a crime of suicide. We got rid of it in um, 1911 or attempted suicide. Neither one of those are crimes anymore. And so when you have a transferred intent case, the intent has to be substantially the same in order to transfer. So if someone is trying to commit suicide, that's not murder. So that doesn't put her into the category of first degree or second degree murder. And the, the cases, there are cases out there that talk about where someone is killed during a suicide attempt. And most of the time, if, the, if in those states where suicide is not a crime, the ultimate crime for the other person dying is a manslaughter. Counsel, can you just address State versus Walker? So State versus Walker is the case that had to do with the um, whether without great bodily injury. Yes, it's the one that's the cited in, in the case that starts with an M. My, my, my I pronounce it Mytich. I don't know right. if that's well, right or not either. In but, right. Um, so if I can back up just a minute on, you know, with Mytich and Stokely, you know, those cases, the state's saying they'd have to be overruled. You know, those are, those are very different cases, and both of those cases come down to the fact that the person was, um, the defendant, were, they were acquitted of the higher charge. So the, the state had presented evidence in both of those cases, I assume, that there was premeditation and the intent to kill. And the, in Mytich, the judge specifically acquitted the defendant of the first and second degree, and by doing so, found that there was no premeditation and there was not the intent to kill, so went with the third degree depraved mind. The Walker case had to do with... Is it, uh, counsel, could, could I stop you right there? Because on Mytich, there was really important language in that case where the... Our court um, quoted a district court setting in an affirmative way, setting out the uh, four elements of third-degree murder, and you know, um, the without intent to affect the death of any person was not set out as an element. And then you had that quote from Walker also that was put in there with approval by our court, saying affirmative proof of the lack of intent isn't necessary, and. You know, you're the one urging us under Brescian to look at history. So I think that's quite persuasive. I would say with, with Mytich, with my that case, because that entire quote in that case is from the district court's order. That's not the appellate court. That's not the Supreme Court's holding. That, I mean, they, they take that and they adopt it. But it's also, you know, been recognized as an anomaly as far as third-degree murder go. Because if you look at those facts, there well, was an unusual yeah, case. Yeah, it's a very I, unusual case. I think there case. was rough justice being being done there. But right. Um, so, but, so it's, but they did quote the four elements in a way that made it clear <laughs> they agreed that those those were the elements of third-degree murder. And I I would disagree that those that that those are the correct four elements. I would say that this without the intent to affect the death of any person is also an offense element because it's in the statute. 
that case didn't need to go there. And also, it was, it's one of those cases where they'd already, just like Stokely, they had the higher, the greater offense than where there was the acquittal. And that's a much different situation. So I think that with, with Mitich, you know, subsequent to that, this court held in um, Hansen and, and also Zumberg that this, if someone is intending, is the defendant's animus is directed towards a specific person, that it is not a third degree murder case. And that's subsequent to Mitich, like I said, Mitich is one of those, you can know, we really. Just, can we just go back to Walker? Okay. I mean, so Walker with, interprets the exact same language. Right. That's with an a, issue here. So with Walker, that that was, again, it wasn't the direct analysis that of the third degree murder statute, but in that case, there was the um, the without clause, and that um, after that case was decided, that statute was changed and that was taken out of there and reworded. So I think that you know they also didn't use the the Breshon Berg test on whether there was an offense element. So it, that case was before this court announced that test. So I also think that that makes that different as well. And the, I think the most, one of the really important things is, is when the court's looking at the plain language of the statute, you, the, it's really important that every word is looked at and every phrase is looked at. And what the state's position is, is that you take that phrase out of there because it doesn't mean anything, that it basically relieves the state well, of that's proving. that's what Walker says. I mean, and, and, I, and so I, you're saying Walker is undermined because the statute at issue in Walker has been, the legislature has changed the statute in Walker? I think that's one, one point, that this, the legislature has changed that statute and taken that language out. That also it wasn't analyzed under the Breshon-Berg test and also um, that it's not the third degree murder statute where this phrase. No, I understand that, but it is the same phrase. I mean, without intent to inflict great bodily great harm. Bodily harm. It, it's a, without, it's a yeah. without clause. And so the, the court there, I mean, I would say I disagree with the court's analysis there because it's, a, it's take, saying that the state doesn't have, you know, that takes the burden away from the state to have to prove that. but. Again, in that particular statute, it wasn't, it wasn't, if you use the Breshon-Berg test, it wasn't so embedded in that statute that it was necessary for that offense. Whereas in the third degree murder statute, that phrase is necessary for the offense because without it, there's no distinction between second degree and third degree. It removes that demarcation. It removes that this now so is... If, if, take the shooting of the crowd example you gave. Um, and so the state just charges third degree and doesn't in the complaint charge second or first degree. Is the best defense for a defendant to say, I actually intended to shoot somebody? If, if, they, did, if they did that defense, I mean, if, if, I would assume the state would have that information and would charge the higher crime. Well, but what if they just get... How would you have to know that the defendant couldn't? They couldn't get the defendant to say that before trial. So why couldn't the defendant just get up on the stand at trial and say, "I actually intended to kill somebody," and then they can't be convicted and they can't be recharged? Well, if they, I would, I would say first of all that if the defendant did that, the attorney representing him would be ineffective. 
for well, allowing him to, get, to be, admit to a higher he'd crime. Be um, maybe not. The state may try to move to amend the complaint. Um, you know that you don't see a defendant admitting to more serious crimes unless there's something quite well, wrong. So let's change the facts of this case from a car to a gun. There's somebody who decides he wants to commit suicide in a public place. There are other people around. Takes the gun, puts it up to his head, fires, goes through his hair, and hits somebody else and kills that person. So he definitely intended to kill himself. He just didn't do it. So you can't charge it under criminal vehicular homicide. There's no right. car here. You can't charge it under manslaughter because there's no heat of passion. Um, it, does, does this person get a free homicide? No, it would still be a it would still be a manslaughter. It'd be a, a second degree manslaughter with the culpable negligence, and that's usually what the, the crimes are in these. In well, it, other was, states. it wasn't negligence. It was intentional. It, he well, was trying to kill trying himself. to kill himself, but he's using a gun recklessly, and that I, that would fit culpable negligence. The the other thing would be is if if a person you know that used the suicide bomber, there would be a coexistent. Um, intent element where the person is trying to kill themselves but also intending to kill other people. So that would also fit into, you know, if there's premeditation, a first degree or a second degree, and obviously um, that there would be both intents to kill <coughs> themselves plus the other people that they're, um, you know, if they're shooting a gun or if they're driving a car into the crowd intending to kill more than just themselves. Council, what do we do with um, State v. Cole? With State v. Cole, that, that, that case has to do with the second degree felony um, uh, murder statute. And like I said, that statute, actually the language in that one about um, without intent to affect the death of any person, in that statute it isn't necessary because under subdivision two, it, it talks about that that is an unintentional crime. So it, it isn't, it's different than the third degree murder statute where that phrase is integral to the offense. How do you respond, and I can't believe I'm asking this question, but how do you respond to the grammatical argument that the phrase is a non-restrictive clause set off by commas, so it's not necessary to the meaning of the sentence. So it wouldn't be an element. But then it's not superfluous because it um, provides distinctions between the murder statutes and it gives citizens fair notice of what they'll be um, convicted of. I would, I would say that that, that clause is an ad, adverbial phrase. It's not a non-restrictive. You know, in the same statute, in the, I think, um, Justice Tudor, you brought up this point. The phrase without, um, without intent to, or what is it, without, um, without regard, regard for, for human, human life, life is also yeah. set out in commas. So under the state's theory, both of them mean nothing. And then that basically means there's, you know, the statute has, um, you know, without those two clauses, there was then what's the mens rea, what does the statute mean? So in that sense, the, the, the without, effect to, without the intent to affect the death of any person really is the adverbial clause that explains the mens rea. And it does limit it because of that being in that statute. 
Um, I'd also like to just point out that the state's saying that they have this impossible burden that they can't, um, they can't basically prove a negative. But in other situations, like if someone is charged with um, first-degree murder or indicted for first-degree murder, uh, and the defense raises and notices that it's the crime is done in the heat of passion or as self-defense, the state has the burden to prove the negative on those. And so the state is used to doing that. That happens. So it isn't any different than here where they would have to prove that the person acted without intent to affect the death of any person. So that those are, you know, those those mans the first degree manslaughter, those would be similar to this where the state does have to prove the negative and they do that all the time when those defenses are raised. Um, just finally, if you look at the Brescian test and you decide that um, it is, it would be too hard for the state to prove it, which we say they, it is not, then it, under Brescian and Berg, this becomes an exception. And with the exception, then the burden shifts to the defendant. So here, Ms. Hall would also win because she did present enough evidence to show that she was trying to kill herself at the time that this accident happened. So even under whether the court looks at plain language, whether they look at it as an offense element, or they look at it as the exception. Does it really make sense, though, that it's an exception that would put the burden of proof on the defendant to essentially admit guilt to a higher degree of murder? When you, when you look at it, you know, one of the things the court also has to do when you're looking at this statute and looking at the language of the statute is you take into account the facts of the case. And you, so with the specific facts of this case, and you look at that statute, it's clear that she doesn't fit under that statute, that her, what happened here, her conduct doesn't fit that. And I guess there's a question that... Well, it certainly does if you just think about it from a depraved mind standpoint and you just, just for, for purposes of argument, you leave out the, the phrase. Just say it's not there. I mean, driving a car in excess of, what was it, 100 miles an hour when you're intoxicated? I mean, that seems to me to be the definition of depraved mind. I'm going to correct you there. Okay. Um, she was not intoxicated. Okay. There, there, the evidence did not show she was intoxicated. She had consumed some alcohol. She did within okay. two to three minutes before the crash. So there, she was not intoxicated. She was severely mentally ill. She was in a state that she had decided she had to kill herself in order to get into heaven. And there was no dispute that she is severely mentally ill and that she was on this suicide attempt. So that she was trying to kill herself to end all be all. That was very, that, there was no dispute about that. So if you look at um, one of the other questions that came up is if you agree with the state here, what happens? What, what happened, should happen is if you agree with the state and you reverse the Court of Appeals decision, you have to remand it back to the Court of Appeals because they did not decide the sufficiency argument on whether she met the depraved mind. That was not decided because of how they ruled on this particular issue. So that would need to go back to the court for decision there. And so I, that's where I also disagree with you because we did raise that, that her conduct was not did not fit the definition for this third-degree murder offense. And you don't think the record is sufficient for us to just make that decision? I mean, why well, don't we just do that in the interest of judicial economy? 
Well, I would say there's two reasons. One is that we had filed a cross petition asking the court to look at that issue, and you denied it, so we did not brief it. Um, And second, you know, the Court of Appeals didn't reach it because they reversed on this ground based on the plain language of the statute. Counsel, following up on the hypothetical I gave you earlier, are you saying your client is, the facts show that your client is guilty of second degree manslaughter? In this particular case, she was convicted of criminal vehicular homicide because because of the use of the car and the gross negligence behavior. Um, So she is convicted of that. That conviction stands. I know. Right. Yes, I'm asking you about second degree manslaughter. So if I'm understanding your question, then you're asking would she also be guilty of second degree manslaughter? Um, sure, it, she would be if you took the, vehic- the vehicular part of that out of there. The but she wasn't. She wasn't. Um, she wasn't charged with that. She was charged under the more sure. specific with the crime vehicular homicide. Okay. So, based on the plain language of the statute, this court's case law, and the history of that particular statute, the third degree murder statute the legislative intent, the phrase without intent to affect the death of any person is an offense element that is important and critical to the third degree murder statute. And we'd request that this court affirm the Court of Appeals (coughs) decision that reversed her conviction for third degree murder and remanded for sentencing on the crim vehicular homicide. Thank you, counsel. Ms. Burdorf, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Council, one quick uh, uh, bureaucratic, well, I shouldn't say bureaucratic, I guess it's an important detail. Because I heard you answer this question both ways. Um, do you agree with opposing counsel that a remand here is required? I think a remand is what you, t- that is the typical thing that you do when you are remanding based on legal rulings. Certainly this court has the authority and power should you believe the record is sufficient and the facts are sufficient for you to conduct your own sufficiency review. We have no objection to that. I was answering the question really as what is your more typical practice, but either of those remedies are fine with the state. Um, So I just want to briefly touch on a couple things. The argument um, that Ms. Hall is making is that um, the without intent to affect death is so integral to the statute because that it it has to be an element. Um, That exact language is also in the felony murder statute. It is integral to that statute in the same way it is to the third degree murder statute in this case. And this court in Cole said that it was not a necessary element the state has to prove. So you would be reversing Cole if you affirm the Court of Appeals decision in Hall. Um, I would like to talk a little bit about Walker and Staples. It's a couple cases I didn't touch on in my initial remarks. Both of them involve very analogous statutory uh, phrases, which are without intent to affect great bodily harm or without intent or design to affect death which is the identical. And what this court said about both of those phrases in Staples and Walker is they were inserted into the statute not to add a burden to the state, but to relieve the prosecution of the burden of proving those elements. We'd ask you to adhere to those cases in this particular case. Um, The history, one of the arguments um, Ms. Hall is making is you should look to history, you should look the history because this will tell you that this is a very important element. She also made an argument that transferred intent wouldn't apply because suicide is not now a crime. I would note historically it was a crime at the time that the statute was 
enacted. It was a separate common law crime, and it was a crime until 1911. So at least the drafters of the third-degree murder statute um, wouldn't have considered suicide when they drafted the language without intent to affect the death of any person to be a non-criminal act that couldn't transfer. Um, I, the prosecution is not arguing that the phrase without intent to affect death has no meaning. We are arguing it is not an element of the offense of third-degree murder that the prosecution is required to prove. It certainly does have meaning, and this is reflected in our brief. It has meaning because it helps us distinguish between the degrees of homicide. It guides prosecutorial discretion, and it does, in fact, give citizens fair notice of what conduct is prohibited. So it has purpose. It has meaning. Those words aren't superfluous. They are just not elements of the offense that the state is required to prove. Um, I've very quickly run through my remarks, but I do want to talk a little bit about, again, this idea of sympathetic facts make bad law. Um, one of the things that happened at the district court in this case is the district court recognized that this was a sympathetic defendant. Um, and instead of perverting the law, applied the law correctly, I'd note a couple things, which is the idea that um, that suicide was an exception to third-degree murder was not presented to the district court, so I don't think it's fair at this juncture to look at the district court's findings and assume that the district court found that a specific intent to commit suicide. So that's one thing. The, court also, the district court also applied the third-degree murder statute and its elements exactly as this court articulated them in State versus Minnick. And I'd ask this court to recognize that and affirm that. What the district court also did in the face of these sympathetic facts is looked at this defendant and did exactly what it should do, which it mitigated sentence. That is where a person who does not meet the mental illness standard, but is obviously sympathetic and deserving of some consideration for those facts, that's where it should happen. That's where it did happen in this case. Um, and I think the district court did that appropriate, and I wanted the court to actually reflect on that and consider that that was a more appropriate way to remedy what might seem like sympathetic facts than what was done at the Court of Appeals. We are asking you to reverse the legal rulings made by the Court of Appeals in this case. Thank you. Okay. Thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this matter. Uh, this case is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. Um, we're going to recess the formal part of our court proceedings now, um, and the court will step off the bench and take off our robes, and we'll come back out and talk with the students. Um, before we do that, though, please, I would ask everyone to join me in thanking counsel for coming on the road with us. We very much appreciate it. Thank you, counsel. Uh, you're welcome to stay for the Q&A. Um, you're not required to. If I were you, I wouldn't stay. Uh, but uh, we'll step off now. We'll be back in just a couple minutes. Thank you.